Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hi, my name is Sandra Hindman, and I'm here today with Professor Sherry Lindquist. We are going to do a podcast that is related to our present exhibition, which we have titled The Margins of Medieval Art Questioning the Center. And Sherry, I thought of partly because of her wonderful exhibition and book, which she did with Asa Simon Mittman, called Medieval Monsters, Terrors, Aliens, and Wonders. So welcome, Sherry. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's exciting to talk about these amazing objects. I should also say Sherry is presently a professor at Western Illinois University, and she is a former student of mine, I am proud to say. Always a student of yours, Sandra. Well, there. Um, (laughs) I love staying in contact with my previous students and being able to share in their work and vice versa. So why don't we start by talking a little about why we're discussing monsters in terms of marginalia, because actually the topic of our exhibit is not monsters, but there are monsters in the margins of medieval manuscripts and other works of art. So Sherry, I I shared the catalog with you. I don't know, what do you think? Are monsters more often in the margins or are monsters in the center? Monsters are everywhere. You can't escape them. But it's true that they often haunt the margins because Monsters kind of stand for the unknown or the things we fear, the things we don't understand. Otherwise, we'd have a different name for them. We would be able to categorize them and put them in in our file folders and know who they are. But if we don't know what it is, it's a monster. And they stand for all kind of human discomfort with the unknown. And in a Christian worldview, Uh, which characterizes the objects that we're looking at, there's a need to to explain the things that don't fit into the whole theological construct. And the monsters can stand for that too. So I think you find them in the margin, you find them in the center, you find the great heroes, the saints, slaying the monsters, you find that in the center and in the margin as well. But the, the The monsters can stand for other things that Christians were afraid of, uh, particularly transgressing boundaries that had consequences. So they could stand for the seven deadly sins. They could stand for their own transgressions that they needed to compensate for. You characterized monsters as three different types, I guess we would say, terrors, aliens, and wonders. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little about that. I mean, what, um, how did you come up with those types and are they overlapping and 
how would we recognize those types? What's well, a terror? What's an alien? What's a wonder? I mean, they seem pretty broad. They are broad. And in fact, you can't particular, they are, and they are all overlapping. And in fact, when we, when we were coming up with how to organize monsters, because monsters are not very easy to categorize. They're, in fact, that's part of their definition. So how can you put them into, you know, three neat little subdivisions of an exhibition? Um, it's almost impossible. We came up with probably 15 <laughs> different things that monsters do. That's what we were interested in, actually, what monsters are doing in the margins. And um, we came up what with these- What do you mean these, doing? What are they, what is their social function, psychological function? What are they doing there? What do they mean? Uh, they usually have, they're, they're usually meant to leverage something. They're not just decorative. And so uh, what we determined, we kept on collapsing categories until we got these final three. And the first one, terrors, uh, is about how monsters prop up or um, the powers that be how they, they generate fear or awe, because that's what the dominant classes purport to do for everybody else, to protect in the, in the Middle Ages, to protect everyone else from monsters. They were the military class. Um, they were also the ecclesiastical class. And so they were the conduit to, to the divine. And so, I mean, you've heard of awe-inspiring, awesome, but also awful, uh, monsters are both off, awesome and awful. And that's why we came up with this word terrors. Because you, you can be God-fearing and you can fear monsters. So it kind of has a two-sided idea about it. So, so for example, in our exhibition, the miniatures that have St. Michael fighting a monster, those, would, those monsters would be the terrors, if I understand. Exactly, yes. They're giving even more credibility to the saints. That's right. And, and, and furthermore, I just have to ask you about on the last page of your catalog, there's this marginal being that looks sort of like um, a three-headed crucifixion with no arms and no feet. And it, it, this must go with the choir book just uh, above. Yeah, it isn't it the crucifixion, though? Do you see it that way? Now I have to look at this. Oh, my um, gosh. This is an amazing image. Uh, I see this as a terror in terms of pointing the viewer to the unknowability of God, because that's one of the, the major characteristics of monsters is their unknowability. That's also a major characteristic of the Trinity. You can't know the Trinity. It's uh, even St. Augustine even said that you can't even picture it or figure it in your mind, much less having an artist taking, you know, uh, being able to represent it. Oh, yeah, that's the border. I, yeah, that's the border of the sports miniature of Joe. And yes, there is a hybrid figure in the middle that has, right, two arms as though they were two thieves and their faces in the two arms. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes. I'm just astonished by this. And I'm working on trinities right now on uncanny trinities. And 
one of the things that artists did because they were uneasy about representing something that they have been told is unrepresentable. Um, and so they often undercut or subverted their representation of the Trinity to remind the viewer that this is a representation, that they are not able to represent the Trinity. Um, and and they, they, they found different ways of representing the Trinity, which might seem a little monstrous, like they represented the Trinity <laughs> with three heads. Right. Or, um, and, and they were uneasy about it, but they were trying to use the language of monstrosity. They weren't suggesting that any sacred figure was monster, but they were using that very evocative language of monstrosity to get to sacredness that we can't understand. Hmm. I see. Beyond That's us. And so when you find something like this in the margin, obviously we're not supposed to read this as a trinity or as a crucifixion, but as, as a reminder that this thing can't be represented. And it's just this astonishing little um, uh, meditation on what an image is and what images can do. So I was, I'm, just, I'm just, just so attracted and astonished and um, intrigued by this image. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I wanted to go back to your terms because now we know what a terror is. So I want to know what an alien and a wonder are. So um, let's uh, go with aliens. Uh, unfortunately, monsters can have, um, I mean, we think of them as being horrible and scary and they can be that they can have very harmful, horrible um, uses as well. And so what happens, and I love this verb, and it's, I think it's almost really a word now, but human beings, human societies often monsterize the other. So hmm. people who do not fit into the dominant ideal of who uh, we should be, um, people who are seen as slightly inferior, possibly less than human or to be feared, uh, can be described in the language of monstrosity in a different way than sacred figures are described. So like a satyr. Like, like a satyr. Well, I was thinking more like the apes that are in the margins of some of your manuscripts here, because apes are like humans, but they aren't humans. They're the bestial side of humans. And so oftentimes medieval artists would show apes in the margin doing human-like things. Uh, and they're funny uh, because they're not us. And they're little, um, if, especially if they're doing things like exposing their bottoms, which you see here, overeating, over, you know, drinking too much, which you have a little ape here uh, exposing his bottom and, um, uh, eating and someone's offering him drink, you know, that's a reference to the bestial side of human. But you also get apes shown um, as beggars or as disabled right. people. You, or play, um, you, they play music, they, you know, eat, they represent different kinds of, um, of seven deadly sins as well. That's right. And sometimes that that has the um, effect of otherizing, like people who are non-conforming, uh, who have non-conforming sexual identities, for example. You find a lot of apes doing obscene things in margins, which are references to categories of people that are being other, that are being. 
And what about, inferior. what about fools? Would you consider them with the apes as, you know, a, a, a kind of alien? Um, I think that they're doing the same kind of work as the apes right. a lot of times, but I'm not sure that they're exactly the same because they are human. So they're right. almost standing outside um, of it, pointing at our foibles, whereas the apes are enacting them. Yeah, yeah. Now that's interesting because I have these manuscripts where I love the one where Jerome is, you know, the wise man and his study. Of course, he spoke so many languages, he was able to translate the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, his counterpart in the margin is a fool um, who, you know, spoke gibberish. Um, so, you and know, they let, of- yeah, the margin set up these tensions and and in fact, the fool in the margin is telling you how smart Jerome is, obviously. Right. But, but there's also, you know, there's, there's also a possibility for subversion there where, you know, if you were in the right mood and you wanted and you were wanting to criticize Jerome, which didn't happen very often in the Middle Ages, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you had the freedom to think, well, what is gibberish? Is it, it's not Jerome, obviously, but maybe it's a theologian that I am disagreeing with in the, in the university, who's not as wise as Jerome. I mean, and there's a way in which you can use these marginal, I think they're actually designed for this, use these marginal figures to make your, to prop yourself up, the viewer, make yourself feel superior to whatever they're criticizing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the last one, uh, wonders? Because I think it's interesting to actually see these categories as, as monsters that are doing different things. I mean, it helps us understand the art better. Um, so what about wonders? Well, wonders is an even more difficult to describe category and more overlapping. One of the things that Asa Mittman and I wanted to do was not, was to acknowledge that monsters could be understood as something that could push us forward, something that make us think new thoughts, something that could spur the imagination, think of something that wasn't there before. They are fun to play with, they are fun to think with. Um, And I think that medieval artists did take advantage of those opportunities, even though they rarely were trying to subvert any kind of uh, social structure, especially in these luxury objects made for high status patrons. But they could accidentally do it, <laughs> first, first of all. And, and there were monsters that were used quite pointedly for this reason, like the Vaticinia manuscripts that you and I have discussed before in which the, the bad popes were represented as monsters, as, mm-hmm. um, as criticisms of ecclesiastical structures on the part of, of reformers who wanted to see change. And monsters could be used to leverage change in, in various ways. What about monsters that are just like cute and charming? Is this just too modern a way to think about it? I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the stained glass that I think even started you on this project. You're correct. You, you borrowed it for an exhibit. 
and it's now in our catalog. And I just think he's the cutest little thing. I mean, he makes me smile. He doesn't terrorize me. He doesn't, you know, I, it's just like, you know, it's like your cat at home that, you know, <laughs> just want to live with him. I mean, I don't think we should apologize for taking pleasure in these things. And I think that the medieval artists also took pleasure in their work. I think there's evidence of that. I think monsters, especially monsters in the margins, maybe they had a little more freedom to play with them, um, even within these conventional structures that they were working within. One thing is we don't know the context of this piece I of know. glass. I know. So much easier for us to just think he's cute. He is eating the ornament. Like I was saying to you, he's (laughs) chewing the scenery, you know. Right, right. And and this whole this is a whole theme in medieval art, as you as I don't have to tell you, but of inappropriate and appropriate eating. There's all kinds of theological passages in which monks are described as masticating the word and ingesting the word of God. And, and, it, and it is, it does um, point us to the Eucharist in which you ingest God and God is right. the word. Right. So to have a monster ingesting the, the, the ornament could be, it's the opposite of that. I'm going to get too, <laughs> get too um, maybe extend the metaphor too far, but I mean, it's possible kind of like when you have a monster eating um, part of a church it has larger connotations and they're kind of interesting he's also cross-eyed I know I love that <laughs> I mean, it's like what is that about like you know is there something about cross-eyedness or um was it just a playful you know artistic rendering um but I mean, it, the artists have a, a choice on how scary they want their monsters to be and I just personally think, and I maybe you agree, that a cross-eyed monster is not as scary as a non-cross-eyed monster. So That's I, probably right. That's right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I could be I could be proven wrong. Like I'm gonna be on the lookout for super scary cross-eyed monsters now. Exactly. Well, we've sort of talked around a little bit the subject of the creativity of artists in this. And what um, I was wondering is because you can't go and like see a monster in real life and like draw it after life. And because there must not be some like prototypical monster that is the model for all artists to draw all monsters. Do you think that um, that this particular category like freed up um, or liberated a, a kind of extra creativity in medieval artists? Well, I, don't, I mean, I think it's possible that they felt that kind of creativity around subject matter like this, but um, I think they're pretty firmly tied to the whole power structure of church and state. But within, as we all know, within our restrictions, we can be super creative and artists certainly were. Yeah, I'm not so much talking about, you know, the meaning church and state. I'm really talking about here you are, you're going to include a monster in your border. How are you, what are you going to, what does he look like or she or it? How are you going to, are you going to copy someone else's monster? Are you going to just create a monster from scratch? What are your 
you know, what are the, what is the kind of visual memory, if it, you can call it that, that drives you to represent your monster in this way, if you're a medieval artist? Well, first of all, I don't think medieval artists really cared very much about accuracy. Like they didn't care what a real monster might look like. <laughs> Um, but they probably believed that there were real monsters. I mean, there are, you know, various histories that describe where exactly to find griffins in medieval England. Uh, and real monsters for, I think, a lot of medieval and, and Renaissance and late people from later periods were more like genetic anomalies. So like a two-headed calf or something would be, cons it was a monster with prophetic implications. So they actually could see, like, conceivably, <laughs> they probably didn't, but they, because they were rare, but they could see what they consider to be a real monster. Um, even even cross-eyedness might yeah, be. Yeah, even cross-eyedness. But I, I think that the, the, that medieval artists always had choices. They had a, a brain full of images from, from uh, models that they were familiar with and that they were skilled enough um, and independent enough, I think, to alter those according to the context, according to what they thought would please their patrons, according to their own particular whims sometimes. Right, yeah. I wanna go back to the idea of the margin and the center. Um, you already said that, you know, the, mar the monsters in the margin create a tension with the miniature or the center. I mean, probably the idea of a center versus a margin is a sort of false one anyway. Do you agree or how do you see it? Oh, I think the margins are always moving. I agree with you. Identifying what the margin is and what the center is, is not always, you know, super clear. Um, but, I, um, you know, at, at the same time, there are certain verities that were accepted by the readers of these books or the wearers of the jewelry. And they understood certain central ideas. Incomprehensibility and omnipotence of the Trinity was something I doubt they much questioned. Mm -hmm. That would be the center or the central stories, the stories of the saints. But that didn't mean that they couldn't interpret them through images, which they did all the time. They're right, right. Yeah, you mentioned saints. I mean, you and I corresponded a little about this, and I included saints in my group of marginal figures only because certain saints have qualities that indeed um, regular people don't have. So they are, in that sense, marginal, like Mary Magdalene, whose hair grows over her entire body, like probably no one's hair really does. Or Catherine, who, you know, who somehow her body is so miraculously strong that even when strung up on a wheel that turns, she breaks the wheel and comes out whole. And there are many, many, many saints. I mean, we all know all the miracle stories of saints. But I think, um, you don't really consider saints marginal in that same way that I've just described them. Well, we included saints in our exhibit, which was about monsters, because for the various reasons that you said, that they are beyond the normative. Their bodies could do things that other people's bodies can't do. And, you know, exceeding your sort of accepted bodily parameters is one thing that monsters do. 
And so we wanted to just problematize that and think about that. That turned out actually to be the most controversial <laughs> um, aspect of our exhibit, turns out. Really? Controversial yeah. to whom? It was challenged by the press and the Catholic press. I say, oh, wow. They hmm. were, um, I had a talk with a Catholic journalist who was quite offended by the idea that we would include a saint in their, um, in, in, in this category of monstrosity. Uh, but I think we came to a pretty good conclusion that I wasn't saying that the saints were monsters, but rather that they shared qualities with monsters. They yeah, had monstrous qualities. And that other That's right. I wouldn't say they were necessarily marginal though. I mean, they're, they're, they are marginal in that they are, uh, well, if we decide what we center, I, I think that's the main thing. And I think that in the medieval society, they decided the saints were in the center. And so, it's hard to marginalize a saint in a, in a, for a believer, mm-hmm. I, w- I would think. Um, even if they have monstrous qualities, that doesn't put them in the margins, even if they're literally in the margins. Um, because saints appear in margins all the time, as you know, and angels are always in the margins. Um, but I think that's an example in which the center just moved to the margin. So it's expanded mm-hmm. into the margin. And sometimes the margin can encroach on the center as well. If you're looking in in a central miniature that tells a central story and you see something that subverts or marginalizes in a way you didn't expect, then the margin has encroached on the center. So just like you said, these are permeable boundaries and sometimes it's hard to tell where the margin is and where the center is. And I think the same could be said for saints too. And I think also the mar- if we're talking about some object that is apart from us as the viewers or wearers, there's the margin and the center in that object. But um, are we actually the center? Because the object also plays with our relationship to it. Like in our exhibition, we have these pootie coming out of the pages into our space. I mean, I love that idea that you know, the page is some real object that something um, can penetrate and move toward you. Um, So, or the donor who exists partly in our space and partly in the space of 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 a sacred scene. And of course, being out of the sacred scene and being a secular figure, he's kind of a stand in for us. So, you know, again, margin and center in an object um, moves away from the object to something completely apart from us, from it, like us. No, I completely agree. The margin is negotiating the relationship between us and the center. And we have to remember that the people who are looking at these manuscripts are pretty central, they're they're the dominant class. So they might feel more entitled to think of themselves as the center than a different kind of viewer uh, or the wearers of the jewelry. I mean, and I think this is partly gender too, just because of the social structures in, in the Middle Ages and now that maybe a female viewer would perceive margins and centers differently than a male viewer of these manuscripts because the stories are so, they're part of a patriarchal narrative. But so when I was thinking about that, I was looking at that Seder 
picturing it being worn by a woman and thinking, wow, this is, this is, um, a satyr is associated with, you know, like a sexual predator, like a, um, or at least a, a, um, someone who's uh, sexually occupied, <laughs> preoccupied. That would be like resting on her breast, sort of like peeking into her cleavage if she had, if she were wearing it, you know, with a low neckline or something. And I was thinking, well, I was just thinking about that. Let's see. <laughs> well, our Seder that um, I don't say this in the catalog, but uh, we had our Seder. It's such an exceptional Renaissance art uh, object that we, you know, in doing our due diligence and verifying its authenticity, we had it um, analyzed um, in a laboratory. So we had the enamel analyzed to make sure it was period, et cetera. And the enamel is in perfect condition, except it's evident that our satyr had a penis that is now has, was you know, taken off the satyr. And that's the only part on the satyr's body that the enamel has then been restored to disguise where this, um, uh, as you point out, this primary characteristic of a satyr once was, but is not any longer. So I thought that that's very interesting in terms of both the meaning of satyrs and, you know, modesty. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, it, it's the equivalent of medieval miniatures where the genitalia, for example, are rubbed out um, by later, you know, um, pr uh, prudish owners or users. I mean, the whole this whole idea that it has a penis. I'm, I'm, I'm still <laughs> had a penis. I'm still processing this. But I mean, it's fascinating, and it remind it, it is bringing me back to your idea of us being the center of these objects, which makes a lot of sense, uh, because. Let's face it, this satyr penis had to be pretty small. It is a tiny thing. <laughs> yeah, well, but the satyr is small too. So. Uh, I understand, but what I'm saying is that the wearer knew it was there, but who else knew it was there? It's not something, it's, yeah, you wouldn't see it from across the room, even maybe not even standing next to the person. The person who's the center who owned the piece, whether it was, and it would be different really if it were given to her by a man. Or if she wanted it, she, if it were a woman, who, or we don't know, maybe it was worn by a man. Um, right. You, I mean, we don't so know. Who, well, we don't know who it was worn by, who gave it to whom, or who made it for, if they made it for themselves. But they knew for sure that it had a penis. I, I have no doubts that they are the owner of the interpretation and the meaning. So they're in the center. And then someone decided they didn't want it to have a penis. Right. They're still yeah. the center. <laughs> and furthermore, you're even more right, because if you look at this object and the way it hangs from, dangles from the pendant, I mean, he looks like he's in this extraordinary yoga pose. You know, yeah. I think it might be the, you know, butterfly pose. I can't remember exactly which <laughs> pose it is. But anyway, what you see is his diamond that's on his stomach and the lower part of his body would have been like against the skin. It would not have been visible to the viewer, which is maybe also why this, you know, tiny little, you know, reparation of the enamel has not 
been visible either and is not visible except in a laboratory under magnification. I have to admit I have done this as part of my research, looked really closely at the penises or where they should be of marginal figures in manuscripts. And it doesn't matter how small they are. It's, you think, well, if you have to look at it with a magnifying glass, who cares, right? But someone put it in there. <laughs> so right. so whether, right. it's, it's, it, whether it's small, it doesn't matter. It's there or it's not there. And medieval artists made that decision. In fact, we were talking about the very famous Hours of Mary of Burgundy, which I've worked on somewhat. And they made penises appear and disappear, those artists. So you, on one page, there'd be a, hot, a creature with a penis. You turn the page, the same pe- creature would be on the other side of the folio, and there would have no penis. They would appear and disappear. And even though you have to be obsessed with, I don't know, marginal penises in, in a library with a, <laughs> with a magnifying glass to notice it, the artist put it there. And what does it right. mean? Right. Well, we could talk. Um, it's not our manuscript. It's in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. But of course, there's that extraordinary sequence through one entire choir of nuns gathering penises from a penis. And then finally, this nun is sleeping with this um, monk. And there's been a whole, really a lot written on this manuscript because it is an extraordinary suite of images. I wondered if if you have a favorite monster of all time. <laughs> I've been asked this question before. Have you really? Yes. The ants, so I thought about it. Do I have a favorite monster? I love all monsters. Well, most of them. But I would say that if I had to choose, I would choose the Dracontopede. The and what? The Dracontopede. The Dracontopede is in images of the fall of man, humans, in the Garden of Eden, sometimes the snake has the head of a woman. And that is called a dracontopy. I see. And the reason why the snake has a head of a woman, according to misogynist theologies, not all of them are misogynists, some are more misogynist than others, but the one about the dracontopede is misogynist, basically says that um, the, the reason why Satan gave himself the head of a woman in order to tempt Eve was because of Eve's vanity. So she would be more convinced by looking at something that looked like herself hmm. than, um, than at the head of a snake. And even though this has a misogynist origin, even assuming that before she sinned, Eve was vain, she she had all these negative qualities. I like the idea that Eve wanted to talk to another woman. Yeah, forget Adam, huh? Right. I mean, if I'm going to talk to someone, please just let me talk to another woman and we'll not talk about men and we'll have um, an intellectual conversation about, you know, good and evil and knowledge. Um, so that's my favorite monster in that. I one. see. That's interesting. It reminds me, it's not quite the same, but one of my favorite figures, one of my favorite marginal images. In, and I think it's in this Ghent Bruges book of ours we have, is this hybrid creature 
and I've looked and looked and I can't tell whether I think it's a man or a woman, but this hybrid creature, this isn't particularly attractive that holds a mirror and sees a beautiful woman in the mirror. You know, I guess I hadn't actually, although I should have, hadn't actually cottoned on to the fact that, of course, this is vanity. But it is a little bit like, you know, Eve talking to a woman, although the figure, my hybrid figure might be hydrogenous anyway. Well, you have a great hybrid figure in one of these manuscripts looking into a mirror. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, that is the one. Okay. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. No, I think it's a great figure. Yeah. That's in the Skent Bruges um, the book that's just full of marginalia. Yeah. I was also, I think it might be the same book. Maybe, no, maybe it's earlier in the catalog. There's this page uh, in which they're figuring out a calendar page would have all kinds oh, of isn't that incredible. That's yeah, just it, incredible. I've never seen anything like it. There's a, yes, it's in a Psalter breviary uh, in the computistic tables, the tables where you would figure out Easter and all the movable right. feasts, which are, you know, completely incomprehensible to us today. I mean, not totally, <laughs> not initially. You have to make an effort. <laughs> yeah, you really have to make an effort. But all around the margins are these figures holding, these men holding measuring instruments. One of them has a compass. One of them has a square. One of them has what looks like it might be a globe. And then there's a professor teaching them. So it's about measurement and calculation. It's, yeah. The um, images in the margins, they're also centering the people who did those calculations who are very proud of them. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> they're making us believe that if we try hard enough, we can do the calculations <laughs> too, because, hey, they're just ordinary people there in the margin, like we are. Assuming the book. They also assume that we would want to do that. So there, we are, <laughs> we are again in the center. Um, my, my last sort of question for you was about the longevity of monsters, um, um, modern day monsters. Um, I mean, it's not really just something from the Middle Ages, is it? Uh, not at all. There's, in fact, no human society that doesn't have its monsters, and we are no different. We have a surfeit of monsters because we've, because of the internet has made us have, you know, just so much more of everything, so much more information, so many more stories, so many more images, and a lot of them, if you take a look, are monsters of one sort or another. And I would argue that they have the same sorts of functions in our society as they did in, in the Middle Ages. They make us imagine things, they make us wonder, they, they're used in harmful ways against populations, they're used to generate awe and fear according to whatever um, social context they're in. I mean, they scare us, but they also make us smile sometimes. We like love that. our monsters. We yes. love them. <laughs> Whether they're in the center or the margins. Right. Well, with that, um, maybe we will conclude. I did want to say, since um, we were talking about modern day monsters, I wanted to put in a little plug for your coloring book. Oh. 
part of the exhibition, this was, by the way, an exhibition at um, the Morgan Library and Museum and also at um, the Cleveland Museum of Art. Is that right? And what yes. the third Blanton Museum in, and in the Austin. Blanton Museum. This is now a couple of years ago, but to accompany the exhibition, and maybe it's even still available, Sherry did a coloring book of medieval monsters that um, took many of the monsters from the manuscripts and objects in the show. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, that is true. Um, that was just a little fun project that we had. And um, one thing that I, uh, one thing I love about this coloring book that I, I use it in my classes all the time is because we actually hired a young artist, an undergraduate, a student of Asa's, whose name is Jamie Richardson. And she did the line drawings after actual medieval manuscripts. And one thing I love to say to my students is, look what you can do, you know, think of the possibilities, the creative possibilities that are open to you. We're so proud of our student uh, who did this. And by extension, my other students are doing such great things. That's great. Um, I wanted to thank you for coming. I want to encourage everyone to look at our exhibit, which is there's a catalog online, which I've just been referring to. There's a series of videos there's a general one that's up already and the one that's coming tomorrow is on peacocks which are not monsters but they are certainly in and sometimes they're monsters sometimes they have extraordinary qualities peacock-like features um but they're certainly in the margins and most of all thank you so much sherry for sharing your interest and enthusiasm and love of medieval monsters and commenting on the margins in medieval art, questioning the center. Thank you. Our exhibition, The Margins of Medieval Art, Questioning the Center, is open in the Chicago Gallery and online with lots of special content. This April, we will be participating in both the Winter Show and the New York Book Fair, so please stay tuned for more information about our upcoming fairs, exhibitions, and catalogs. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast, and even to share this podcast on social media with a friend who might enjoy this episode's topic. You can find out more about the margins in Books of Hours and other text manuscripts on our website, and you can reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Les Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.